Bisexual Brunch is produced with love by MIM. And if you like what we do, why not support us on Patreon? Visit patreon.com forward slash bisexual brunch. Thank you. Coming up on this edition of Bisexual Brunch, we'll be hearing from the bisexual creator of the Vagina Museum. Yes, there is such a thing, a vagina museum. In fact, there's a penis museum in Iceland, but we'll be hearing all about the Vagina Museum in London. That's to come, plus we've a rather inspiring bisexual journey story from Andy in Stockport in Greater Manchester. Why is it important at the moment for you to feel that you want to at least express your bisexuality and I suppose wear it on your sleeve a little bit and, and tell people that you are? Why, why is that important to you? There's kind of two reasons, I guess. The first was the most urgent in a way in that I ended up having sudden open heart surgery to replace a valve that was misformed from birth, effectively, and that had started giving me some serious health problems. And that was a little bit of a wake-up call. It was a moment to go, well, you, you've been living, not a lie, because that's not true. It's You've not been fully open with the people around you who care, who you care about. And it's a wasted opportunity. And also, why wouldn't you? Like, uh, either they accept you or they don't. And if they don't, then I'm not sure I wanted to be around them anyway. And then the, the second sort of prong of that, I guess, was uh, my son came out recently as bi without knowing I was. That kind of, I felt like I had to catch him up a little. That's Andy's stories on Bisexual Brunch with Ashley Byrne, Nikki Hodgson and Lewis Oakley. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. <laughs> We as journalists and activists have always found it very difficult to find people who will openly talk about being bisexual. Just don't think there are enough bi perspectives on bi issues. I feel like we've got to talk about it because we're really comfortable doing that. It can be really intimidating. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. I've always found myself at the mercy of gay and straight advice. You can have a bit of competition to see who's the better bisexual bruncher. This is Bisexual Brunch. So another bisexual brunch. And it's quite a strange one, really, because we got news yesterday that um, we're powerful. We're in the power list, guys. What was all that about? We, we just sneaked in to number 99 in yes. the top 100 uh, Pride Power List. And Ollie Alexander um, is number one. And we're bringing up the rear <laughs> at 99. So what do you make of it, Nikki? I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled. Because we've all done, you know, we've all done LGBTQI stuff for years now. And uh, I've got to admit, in the past, I've read the list and thought, oh, it'd be really nice to be on it. I wonder what I have to do to get on it. And then I've seen other people that I think, oh, I don't think you should be on it. And um, so <laughs> when we finally cracked it, I was like, woohoo. And also, it's really nice to do it as a team because there's something really lovely about doing it collectively. And like the collective power that we have is obviously the power we share to make this program. And, you know, I don't know. It just, I just really like that it wasn't one or 
three of us or even the three of us separately but it was literally the show that, that's got us on so that made me feel really happy yeah how do you feel uh, Lewis yeah ecstatic it's it's such a, a lovely thing and I'm, I mean to be honest it's one of those things where this power list um I've definitely called it out a few times in the past because there's been no bisexuals on it so it's really great that at least there's three this year from us and yeah I mean guys we haven't even been doing this podcast that long and I think it really is a testament to what what work we've been doing here how relevant it is as well because it's not just us like there is an audience for this we're getting some impressive download figures we're getting so much engagement people are actually quite interested in what we're talking about so this time next year let's work our way up we're on the list now <laughs> let's try let's try and get let's try and get up to alexander yeah. yeah, yeah, let's just climb it. Let's climb it for sure. <laughs> we we only we only started this last summer, last August actually. I think we we started, so we're not we're not even a year old with mm. bisexual brunch. I think though, I mean, it's great, it's fantastic, but not not just for us, but for you know, I think the people who've made it uh, in a way have been our contributors. Um, in particular, those people who have um, given us their personal stories from all around the world, and of you know, what I find really amazing is so many people who aren't actually or haven't been out as bisexual at all have used a bisexual podcast that literally broadcasts all over the world to reveal their bisexual identity and i think that is amazing that they've trusted us really to be able yeah. to convey their stories to everybody around the world in different parts of the world and and you know and more and more people are acknowledging that and so yeah i think i think the big thanks really has to be to those people who have engage with the program and see us you know as part of their their new sort of community and their lives you know and, and people are constantly saying that they you know several people say they binge listen to us so <laughs> i find that fairly strange to be honest that people binge listen to us over several hours at a weekend or whatever but uh, but no that, that's, that's really, it's really it's really great you know that uh, that people are doing that so yeah no i i think it's fantastic and yeah um i think i'm glad I'm, I'm glad we're 99 and not 100 actually i'm quite pleased at that i think that just feels psychologically it feels a little bit better <laughs> so we're not at the bottom yeah. did you notice though, but, uh... that there were a few other bisexual people in there this time actually Mm, a little bit no, further right. it was, it was like, much better spread this time I think yeah definitely so you know it's, it's interesting um, the only thing that was annoying for me was I went out to get a, a hard copy of The Guardian which is supposed to be published in and it wasn't in there and it was like I really oh. wanted that you know it wasn't in there at all so maybe it's in today I don't know no idea no, I totally. I'll send you the picture. I got it yesterday. I totally forgot to reply to your to your message. Oh, I went. There, I went out and got it. It was in there yesterday. Oh, yeah. right. I couldn't find it. Where was it? I'll have a look in a bit anyway. But so, if you open it to the center, there was like the insert thing, and it was literally like one or two pages. I think. Oh right, past okay. the middle. Okay, I'll have a look. Yeah, I'll have a look. It's, it's just nice. We said this before, didn't we? We were talking about the Radio Times at Christmas time. It's just nice to have a, a hard copy. I don't know how lot much longer that's going to last because I feel as though COVID has started to kill lots of things off, and less and less places are selling newspapers and whatever. I, I think a couple of years time, we probably probably won't even have anything in in hard print. Do you at guys? All. Do you guys want to know something embarrassing? But I don't. I don't care. Go I'll on. Go on. So like, um, like being on the power list, that is huge that's amazing and like you're kind of right it's like it's so digital so i have had like a little i'm gonna have like a little plaque printed out with just like the logo of the powerless just to, like go on on the on the sideboards because it's like yeah i was i was once on the powerless yeah <laughs> like definitely just, you have to yeah. collect these things because when you're old you'll have all this cool stuff to look back at and you'll think oh actually do you know what we really killed it for a while 
And maybe yeah, now I'm just what... sat, sat on the sofa with a blanket trying to wade up, like ward off dementia. But I did actually yeah. do some really good shit. That's exactly it. So, okay, so good. So I shouldn't be embarrassed. Because, yeah. No, yeah. don't be embarrassed. I have, a, I, I have a cuttings book from like really good articles or things that I think are really good, like achievements articles. And I'm just about to laminate them all and make them into like a memory book so that when I'm really old, I can like give it to my family or, you know, who knows well, what. You so, know what? Which is fun. Touch wood, Nikki and I are going to see each other in person for the first time in like what must be a year this yeah, week. Yeah, it is a year. So I'm going to come over to her house, meet her new dog, and I want to see this cuttings book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before before we talk about um, meeting the dog, well, we're not we can't meet meet the dog in person, but we can see the dog today. You're going to bring the dog on, aren't you, Nikki? Go on. I am. Shall I go get him now? Can you just wait? Yeah, of course okay. you can. Yeah. One second. Here he is. Oh, here's the dog. Oh, oh, Nikki. This is finally. Herbie. Herbie, say hello. Aww. Say hello. Oh, look at that cute little face. <laughs> he's very, very cute right now. He look, oh, he's looking avidly. He what, really he is. Himself? Hello. He's, maybe it's another dog. Sometimes he barks when he sees that. Hello. Is he friendly? Yeah, he's really friendly. He's just a bit. So, I think he's a bit starstruck. Oh, you don't know what's going on, do you? Who is it? Oh, I love his big floppy ears. I know. Well, maybe Maisie, Maisie loves dogs. So maybe like in a couple of weeks, you can like all go go for a picnic at a weekend. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's really love. a sweetheart. He's so tiny as well. Look at, this, look at him. He's, he's lovely. Big. Describe the dog for the, for the listeners, Nikki. Describe what the dog look, looks like for the listeners. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So he's a, he's a miniature Dachshund. He was the smallest in the litter. So he's very, very mini. And uh, he's black and tan, classic. Although he's got a white toe, which means that he can't be at Crufts because he's not perfect enough. But he's my absolute favourite creature in the world, apart from my husband, already. So, but he's not barking. He's normally barking and he's not barking now on purpose. Oh, he's yeah, so anyway, very sweet. He's Lovely incredibly eyes cute. Well. He's got a nice little uh, bow collar on because he likes to look smart. And here he is. And he's never been in the office before, so he's really excited at the minute because he's like, ooh. <laughs> And how old, how old is he? How old is he? He's he's like uh, just going into his thirteenth week. Oh, okay. So he's very small. Yeah. But anyway. Do you know right. what I was thinking? It feels like it feels like I know. Like obviously, a dog is not a baby, but it feels like just because there's been such a build up, it feels like you kind of have been pregnant for nine months or dog pregnant. It's no, like, it's I, been like do, do, this dog's I mean, coming. The dog's coming. Every morning, I wake up and I'm like. What does the dog need? I have to sort the dog out. And I don't even make a cup of tea before anything. Like, I have to I have to get him out to potty. Then I have to play with him for an hour. We have to have a special meal we, that we put in a snuffle rug so I have to hunt for his food because he's a sausage. Because he's a hound. He needs to, like, be stimulated. So he can't, oh. you can't just feed him in a normal way or he gets bored. We've been taking him out this week. He's been going to the park. He hates other dogs because he's terrified of everyone because everyone's bigger than him. But uh, he's just a love. He's like... I feel like we have a family. He's definitely proper opened up a space in my brain to accommodate another being. Yeah, and I can tell you've already got a bit of chemistry with each other. Yeah, you know, he's, a of, he's an absolute love. Yeah, he must yeah. be in hell. He's yeah. super comfy. Beautiful. Really nice. Really nice. Oh, yeah. Happy. Well, not that it's a competition, but I have just had to go and get my baby. She was oh, <laughs> she was napping, and she good. obviously heard all this attention. Yeah, and she was like, <laughs> Hello. Look, can you see the doggy? Hello, Maisie. Who's this? Can you see this little doggy? Say hello. Hi, yeah. Right, I'm going to let her play. (laughs) 
Right, we'll definitely <laughs> have to hang out with the with with our little babies. <laughs> right, come on, let's right, chat right, about some bisexuality. <laughs> See him, she's looking. She's looking at him. Aww. Just give him a look. Aww. Look at him. Yeah. <laughs> she realises what it is. Alright, I'm gonna put it back. <laughs> and they, they did at the end, I think lock eyes, they realised. They, they did. Yeah, they, they did. did. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, well let's talk a bit about uh, bisexuality then. Lockdown. Everybody in lockdown at a loss as what of what to do with themselves, going on the computer and typing in Am I gay, bi, lesbian, whatever. This is a, a story that data story that came out this week nikki tell us more yeah so basically it was a story that was in the new statesman and uh, they obtained the web traffic data from the nhs digital page which is uh, if you type in am i gay it's the first page that comes up in google when you search for that question so they got the data from it to see how many visitors were clicking on that site and it had gone up by 60 percent from the start of the first lockdown in march 2020 until the end of summer 2020 um the average NHS webpage stayed consistent throughout the year. So it tells you that there's been an absolute surge in people considering their sexuality, searching to see if they can find information about, um, you know, about the, the sexuality they think they might be. And maybe just really reflecting on their lives during lockdown, because I think lots of people have had a chance to do that. And uh, I think, maybe I mean... I did have to laugh because I was thinking, is it because people are so annoyed with their partners? They're typing in, am I gay? Just in case that, you know, that's the reason why they absolutely hate the person they're living with. But obviously, I don't think it really is. <laughs> I was going to joke, maybe people like stuck, were stuck in house shares and they were like, can I like come onto my housemate? Oh, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was also that they were so sex starved and fed up that they were like, could I possibly make myself gay for the weekend just so that we can get it yeah. on? I'll, there's be something else to do other than cross-stitch or, you know, watch this terrible news channel again for the 20 millionth time. <laughs> yeah, and, and we obviously there's no, I presume it's not broken down, is it, of course? We don't know whether they've, they're, they're typing in bisexual or gay or lesbian or whatever across the board. Um, but it does, for me, I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I presume, well, again, we don't know, but I, I would presume it's a, a cross-section of people of different ages and people who, of a certain to a certain age, will have probably oh we know we know that this is that this isn't true of a lot of bisexual people but what i mean is a lot of people will have come to terms with whatever their sexuality is by a certain point um but of course people who are bisexual often come at this later and so i wor- i wonder whether actually um if we need, did know the detail and i'm just surmising completely whether it is people you know who are a bit older who are actually just questioning it and wondering whether actually you know they might actually be bi you know what i mean that's me being you know being very positive about the prospect of bi people more bi people being out there but it does i mean there is a lot of talk i mean we, we keep saying that there's bi erasure and there is there's you know not a lot of people talk about being um bisexual but there is a there is still a lot of conversations about pronouns and this that and the other in the in the news quite a bit and and maybe people are just starting to question everything about themselves a little bit you know yeah which is to the good I mean I, I did I was on Sky this morning and there were lo- there were loads of stories in the mail about pronouns I mean I think there were like three different stories and they were really they're all extremely negative you know taking the piss saying that we why we just uh why are we trying to dis- um why we're we trying to discern between gender and sex why we're we teaching children to discern between it and my point, my take was basically like, well, because it's the future of gender and how we think about relationships and how we think about gender. And uh, 
From a sexology point, we are still at the very beginning stage of understanding so many things about sexuality. So why wouldn't it be the case that some people are non-binary and that we don't know enough about what pronouns, uh, that the, the, the full volume of uh, identities people hold, sexual identities, and the pronouns they want to use. And I've always just had, it always gets my back up when somebody's like, oh, why do they have to be a they? Why can't they just, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because it's like, it really makes no difference to you if you use that pronoun. They, they're, they're just a human being that you're interacting with. Like, what is it to honour their pronoun? It's not any different to, you know, when somebody, uh, I don't know if you ever have this, if someone abbreviates your name without, uh, without you knowing them too well. Like, if somebody ever calls me Nick and I don't know them properly, it's extremely offensive to me. And I don't really see it as being any different. I get that all the time. People have, people have only known me for five days and they're calling me Ash. And it's like, what? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, you didn't get invited to do that. Yeah, it's outrageous. But you know, God, I'm going to be careful what I call the two of you. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say. Um, you you but, win but, the privilege. You're all right. Okay, good. I've got the privilege. But kind of like back to your back to that side. I do find it fascinating, like all, all joking aside around like people maybe coming to some realizations in lockdown. I think it's really hard because in some ways lockdown was like a unifying experience. It happened to all of us in pretty much every country. But at the same time, it was completely not unifying because some people looked out. Some people went on furlough for, for for a year and it was like, oh, great, because I didn't like my job and I can just sit around now. Some people literally lost their job. Like, so, so it's such a random thing. I do think for some people, there might have been a positive element in kind of like, well, this is the first time I haven't got to deal with biphobia or anything like that this is the first time i haven't got to put up with other people's opinions on my sexuality because i'm locked in with with my people or whatever it is so i think that to that point maybe there there were more people that kind of for the first time felt that they had space to kind of explore their sexuality um or maybe for some people it was the first time that they were not distracted by so much going on in life that they actually had time to think about it so it's it's really interesting i wish that there were there was more than the one article that we could really dive into on it Mm, yeah, I mean, because it's, it's interesting because when, when stories first started to break about how LGBT people were doing in lockdown, they were all quite negative. And they were saying that well, for younger people, maybe they'd had to move back home to a, a home where um, there was homophobia, where their sexuality wasn't uh, accepted. And as a result, they were having mental health problems. But then th- this is kind of the positive spin on that, isn't it? That actually people have decided to dare to get to know themselves in lockdown because with all that time on your hands, you know, you might as well self-reflect. You may as well. <laughs> what else are you going to do? You clean your drawers 10 times now. Yeah, you've reorganised you've done, your wardrobe. You've done you may your as well drawers. think about your sexuality. Exactly. exactly. You've done your drawers. You've done your Joe Wicks. You've eaten everything you can possibly eat. You've drunken everything you can possibly drink. So. But also, and I, th- I do think this is a wider point, which kind of like ties into what the two of you were talking about. But I, and I think that we probably get it from a lot of the people that email into us, right? Which are usually older men that kind of were like, you know, when they were in their 20s, like, well, I'm going to have to hide my bisexuality forever. And are now in a world where actually we're, 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 we're way past that. Well, some people are. Um, and I think that maybe that in lockdown as well, people were kind of for the, for the first time able to kind of like, really assess like re- and really think about who who they as people are if that makes sense have rambled a little bit because the baby took off no no i agree i absolutely agree i think people are assessing lots of different things and that's definitely coming through in all the letters and things we're getting from people who are you know starting to question things and, and bisexual brunch has helped them just to realize that 
bisexuality exists because they've not even heard the word in certain circumstances that sounds awful but they haven't and that brings me back to what you were saying nikki about your discussion on sky this morning um you know did you did you manage to get in bisexuality in there somewhere well no because we were we were speaking very specifically about um people that were gender non-conforming so obviously it was more about that identity than sexual orientation. So it was it was important to, for me to not confuse the audience, some of whom will be very confused by it and maybe not bring, branch out into kind of, you know, whether that means that then is somebody is therefore lesbian, bi or any of the rest of it. But the pronoun thing is actually really important. And all the negative stories were in the Daily Mail. And so I didn't have any problem in just kind of going in and saying, look, this is the future. This is the future of life. This is where it's headed and just get with it and stop pretending that you can stop the tide of where people of, of how people want to describe themselves but what we do need to do is educate people don't we about the differences between gender and sexuality i mean yes there yeah. are, there are crossovers but yeah. people still don't get it you know i've had people say to me will literally get confused about definitely get confused about the whole idea of being non-binary and bisexual and yes there are non-binary people who are bisexual we know there are right, but you right. know but but you know it's sort of it's just really and, th and then the other issue which really upsets me a lot actually is this whole issue around tra the trans identity kind of thing at the moment where you know it's getting to a point whereby you can't have a decent conversation about trans and i find that quite quite scary actually i mean i i agree that you know, my view is trans people are trans people. I recognise trans women. It's not a problem for me in any way, shape or form. I respect there are other other opinions and I don't want to close down those other opinions. What I want to do is persuade people that actually what we're saying about trans people, that actually, you know, they should be accepted as they are and they're trans women and all the rest of it. Uh, I'd like to win the debate, basically. Do you know what I mean? But I don't think we should be cancelling each other on this. And that's becoming very, quite quite murky. I think at some point, we, we've not done this yet, but at some point we, we need to talk to some trans uh, bisexuals on, um, on on bisexual brunch. But, you know, it's a, it's a very worrying area, isn't it? Because um, I spoke to somebody um, last week who's going to the, uh, the Olympics, who's trans, uh, for the first time. And, you know... She's suffered so much nonsense thrown at her about just because it's in the in the headlines and in the news mm. at the moment. Do you know what I mean? And it's really it's really quite worrying. And I, I just um, and you know, trans people, trans women, trans men—they're a very small minority of people. It's very it's not a huge community in any way, shape, or form. And yet, it seems to get this barrage of hatred. And it's um, it's really quite worrying. I, I I acknowledge other people have got opinions, but I think it's about the way you express those opinions, not necessarily whether you've got a difference of opinion do you know what I mean sure and it's about it's about the fear-mongering around trans people because you know the reality is that trans people as a rule are much more likely to suffer domestic violence they're much more likely to suffer violence on the street abuse have mental health problems um, have substance abuse issues in some cases and they are vulnerable and they are not predators. There's this, this, this stupid narrative that's come out because of the instance of one or two trans prisoners, um, you know, raping women in prison is really not indicative of the whole of the trans population. And I don't know how that has been allowed to take hold because by the same logic, there's how many people, you know, who are not trans who are cis, who have murdered people or raped people. You know, does that mean that therefore we should ignore all of the human race because they're all vi violent and difficult? Of course we don't do that. We see them as a, a minority. And so that's also a minority of the trans population. And I don't understand why we can't get over that. But you know what? I, um, I'm getting out again now. 
Um, and we went um, to a, a, another podcast recording, but they were interviewing um, someone called Virgin X. Now, fair enough, so it's a, it's a drag performance, but gender identity was a big thing talked about. And there were so many songs that were like, kind of like, you know, like covers of like pop songs we know, but like with the lyrics completely changed. I found it so hilarious. And I was like, oh my God, this is what we need. Like, this is how we get past transphobia. Like, literally, like, let's make them laugh. Like, let's like put, because I think we're, everyone is so angry. One good way around it. Is there some really good trans and non-binary talent that we just, like, we should just send them in? Like, send them in. Because I really think, like, I was, I was watching it. And I was like, why does not everyone know this song? This is hilarious. Like, what could a transphobe possibly come back to to say to this song? It's too funny. Yeah, comedy is a good route into it. And because if you think about it, actually, like, 30, 40 years ago, that's what gay guys did on TV. They were extremely funny. And therefore, they actually kind of created some kind of acceptance. I mean, it's sad that, you know, everyone has to be funny in order to be accepted because it just it, that shouldn't be the norm. But I do totally agree with you, Lewis, that actually humour is a really good way to break the ice with people and to disarm them. It's one of the tools. Like you say, we shouldn't have to, but I think, well, we have to be realistic. We are where we are. And actually, it's one of those tools where I just completely forgot about it until I was there. And I was like, oh, my God, comedy. Get him. <laughs> yeah, comedy is good. And we spoke to a comedian, didn't we, recently on uh, Bisexual Brunch, uh, Lewis and I. I think the... I think the the problem is though sometimes is that comedy can have the reverse issue sometimes as well because I think people are frightened of offence um, and that becomes a problem uh, sometimes and and you know sometimes you have to you know you have to break rules in comedy to an extent because that's part of what comedy is about you know what I mean so sometimes you find I find certain comedy. Um, because it's having to pussyfoot around a bit too much, isn't funny. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's weird because I was watching um, an old episode of Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Um, you know, the, 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 the thing with Kathy Burke and James Dreyfus from uh, the late 90s, where um, it's basically a gay guy living with his... Uh, is 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 sex mad uh, straight friend, <laughs> um, and they've got a, I think they have a prostitute who lives next door, and it's all very. And it's written by Jonathan Harvey, of course, who wrote Beautiful Thing and all sorts of different things. And um, it's 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 very funny. It's very near the knuckle, um, but it has to be put out now with a warning before it. You know, a, a big warning about you know you might find these and and potentially most of the people who are watching it probably actually I think are probably an LGBT audience anyway who aren't going to be offended in any way shape or form and but it is very funny but that pushes boundaries and sometimes with comedy you have to push boundaries do you know what I mean I totally get that and as you both know I'm like the biggest fan of Joan Rivers who was probably like would have been cancelled a billion times if she was still around today but what I will say is yeah I know it is hard and I know there is cancel culture but I think that's just being a bad comedian if you can't figure a way around a way around it. Like if you ever watch the documentaries about Joan Rivers, like she was on TV at a time where women couldn't say that you were pregnant, but she found a way around it. She found a way to be like the pitter patter of little feet and stuff like that. So I, I feel like, yeah, that that there is certain taboos at the moment. But that's part of being a good comedian. You've got to find the way around it. You've got to find the way of saying it, making the point and being like, but I've said it in such a way, what can you really say? And I made you laugh. So shame on you, you're already in, the, you're already in it. So I get it, it's harder, but I think if Joan Rivers was still here, she would have found a way around it. Totally. You've got to be creative, extremely creative. And that's one of the points of being in comedy, right? Is to be creative with language. 
Right. So, so just back to this, this, um, this, this study. So, are they likely to do anything with it? Are these? Do we know if there's, if there's anything going to be anything more on this? Is it just literally making a point that people were, you know, were actually being a bit more, you know, being inquisitive during the lockdown? Yeah, there's not any because it was it, it was the new statesman doing the investigation and asking for the information. It's not a study as such. So it's them gathering the intelligence. And then I guess that, that you know, they're, they're journalists. So people reading it could then pick up that and say, oh, we should do some more research around this. Or maybe we should have a we should have a kind of census of like an LGBT census of the nation and find out exactly if the numbers have gone up and those kinds of things. But yeah, because it was a report, then, yeah, it's not going to be. I don't think it'll be taken any further at this stage. I just thought it was so fascinating. It is. And of course, we've got we will have the census results from this year out soon as well. So it'd be very interesting because they might have been search doing these searches and filling the census form at the same time. <laughs> yes, good good point. And I mean, nearly always the number of LGBT people goes up according to the census. And let's just see if it's particularly increased this year. It'd be fascinating to see. One thing to um, say just before we come off statistics, there was a study out last week from Australia, and they found that forty four percent of people in Australia would not date bisexuals. Um, so, I, I, you know, this, this still goes on. The more, we, the more people come out, the more people are, oh, I don't, I don't want any involvement in that. So I think that I, it's one of those things we've talked about on the podcast so much about the issue about, oh, well, bisexual people aren't attractive to other people being such a, an issue of why people are still in the closet. So we've talked about it, but it is still going on. And apparently we need to up our Australian audience because <laughs> they need to hear it. Well, we, both of us, didn't we, uh, Lewis, did actually mention and tweet about uh, the Sun's uh, advice column a few weeks ago, if you remember, Dear Deirdre, which is yes, very famous. Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, and basically, no mention of bisexuality, despite the fact he had a girlfriend, but also, I think he was also, did he also have a, a, a boyfriend, or he was? he said he was interested in guys? And she was like, he's, the, the advice columnist was like, he must be gay. It's like, you're an advice columnist. You don't know what bisexuality is. Yeah. The, 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 the main upshot of what, what, of it was that it should, this person couldn't, definitely couldn't be trusted. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, with no question about whether or not it could be bisexual at all. Now, coming up, we're going to be talking about the Vagina Museum. Nikki and I have been talking to Florence, who's the creator of the Vagina Museum and happens to be bisexual. She'll be telling us about her own bisexual journey story as well as all about the Vagina Museum. There's apparently a penis museum as well, uh, but we're talking at this time about the Vagina Museum in London. Uh, but before all that, uh, we're going to have our official bisexual journey story uh, for this particular episode, and it's with Andy. This is a rather inspiring story. I uh, hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Bisexual Brunch Podcast. We're talking to Andy Owen, who comes from South Manchester, basically, in a nutshell, really. That's where you are, isn't it, Andy? You're in South Manchester. Yeah, sunny South Manchester. Not far from Stockport, I suppose. Really, is that right, would you say? In Stockport, technically. Yeah. In Stockport, yeah, yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. I used to work in Stockport for quite a long time. Many moons ago, many moons ago. Um, so, yeah, obviously we've talked to quite a lot of people, and I'm sure you've listened to some of the interviews that we've we've done with people about their, their bisexual journeys. And what I fi- I'm finding amazing, actually, and it's really heartening and very nice, is that so many people have chosen to actually talk to us about their sexuality for the very first time. Often, 
they haven't talked to anybody else about it. Um, and something we reflected on recently on the show was that even though we're very openly bisexual and we've got, you know, we, it was Nikki and me and Lewis, whatever, um, we actually don't know many bisexual, other bisexual people. Um, we can probably, all of us can count them on one hand, the people we actually know as opposed to people we've got to know on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I mean, people we physically know we could go and see or speak to on the phone or whatever. Is that the same for you? Very much so. Uh, it's probably count on two fingers, really. Um, it's just something that doesn't tend to come up in conversation, I think. It's, we, you speak on the show about visibility and invisibility. And it's, I, I find it really difficult to, to broach that topic in conversation. It doesn't tend to just come up. So whereas someone who's perhaps uh, gay presenting might sort of, that's kind of a, a perceived something, it's visible, if you know what I mean. Or in my case, I'm in a, a straight face in relationship. So people make an assumption, therefore, that I must be straight. And actually, the way I actually feel is, isn't obvious at all without bringing that conversation up. I find it really difficult. And do you think part of it is also the fact that if you say you're gay or you talk about being gay or whatever, and as you say, it can be, you can see it to an extent, especially if you're in a relationship. Um, you, you, you can talk about that, but you don't have to use the word sex, do you? Whereas actually in bisexual, if you say bi, people might, you have to say the word bisexual for people to really understand. And I often wonder, not that we anybody should be ashamed about sex at all, although we, we're starting to live in a very puritanical age again, bizarrely. But I, I sometimes wonder if if you do burst into a conversation and say, so-and-so could be bisexual or I'm bisexual or whatever, that it's that little word that sort of scares them off, scares people off about talking about it. Do you think that's part of it, do you think? I do, and I think people have a, mis, a misconception about what the word means. I'm not sure whether everyone understands... I quite like Robin Oak's definition that it's this kind of capacity to be attracted to my own and another gender rather than it being an assumption I'm sleeping with everyone. And I think that's the differentiation for me that I have a capacity to be attracted to somebody. That doesn't mean that I'm looking for relationships with, with male and female or, or non-binary people. What that actually means is I have the capacity to do that in the same way that my wife has red hair. I could fancy a blonde. That doesn't mean I'm going to go chasing blondes. And for me, it's that same kind of uh, comparison. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. But people don't seem to be able to get their head around that, do they? It's like this little word sex is like, ooh. You know, they've got this, you know, but, but as I keep saying <laughs> endlessly on the, on the, on the programme, that, you know, bisexual people can be promiscuous, yeah, but so can straight people and so can gay people. And, yeah. and you know, and also we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, attack ourselves for that. People... You know, it's legitimate. If people want to be in that kind of world, then that's fine. But it's just this thing that we blanketly are seen as greedy or, you know, wanting sex all the time and all the rest of it. You know, I always say chance would be a fine thing, but, you know, there you go. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your personal your personal story then. When did you first realise, do you think, that you could be bisexual or that, I mean, I mean, did you know the term when you first started out sort of meeting people or as a teenager getting to know girls or boys or whatever, did you, did you know it existed? I think I knew quite early. So probably from the age of 12 or 13, I recognised that I had an attraction to other lads at school, to other boys. Um, I didn't necessarily act on that at the time, but it was confusing because at that point I thought, well, I must be gay then. That's kind of, you know, you're fancying boys. I wasn't aware of the term, I don't think. It's, this is kind of early 90s. Um, I'm you know, 41 now. 
And at that point, I, I just didn't have a word for it. And so I found myself in a position where you, you kind of confused it without, it is, it's pure confusion. Like I, I must be this because of this. Um, and actually that wasn't the case. And it took me a while, it took me years to get my head around that. And it took me a while to actually hear the term bisexual and to, to attach that to the way I was feeling. And even then I wasn't sure. Like that, it, it's kind of come and gone in waves, I guess. And how has that impacted you and the rest of your life? You know, because we talk about these things, sexuality in one, you know, corner and work in another corner and education, whatever. But it, it does have an impact, doesn't it? You know, you know, did did that sort of? I hate to use the word confusion, but the confusion that society was presenting you with, in a way, you know, did that have an impact on other things? Did, has it affected you in terms of just feeling? I suppose feeling happy more than anything else. I've never quite, I've never quite felt like I was being true to myself, and I think there was this kind of internalized, just not disgust, but kind of anger with myself that I couldn't present as I wanted to, um, and I think I kind of, I didn't deal with that very well. And that has an impact on the relationships, doesn't it? As well, it, it does. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to. Not for that not to affect the relationship that you're in, and you start particularly with the the doubt creeping back and forth. It, you almost, I almost have this self, or I've previously had a bit of a self destruct button with stuff, and I, I've sort of I've followed it all back through various counselling and therapy. That that's probably a huge part of it. This this these feelings of who I was compared to who I was presenting as, and it's only in the last eighteen months that I feel like I've finally got to the root of it and and started to to deal with it properly yeah and by the way um you don't look 41 <laughs> you're doing you're doing well you're doing well <laughs> i'm telling the listeners it doesn't look it doesn't look 41 um i'm fishing for compliments now that's the thing but um what <laughs> so when it comes to being in those relationships that you have had have you ever broached the subject that you might be bisexual with, with the people you've been seeing yes yeah, so i was I can't exactly remember how it came up, but my ex, who I've got two kids with, um, she knew. And it was kind of, we spoke about it a little bit, but it wasn't something that she was particularly comfortable about talking with. She didn't react to it in a bad way. There was no negative reaction per se, but it certainly wasn't discussed in the same way that I do now with my current wife. Um, and that makes all the difference, I think. Again, it was almost brushing under the carpet, we're in a straight-facing relationship. We don't need to deal with that. That was kind of the approach, I think, that we resorted to by default, which is not healthy. I mean, it is a difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? And there's lots of misconceptions at the end of the day. I mean, she I, mean, I don't know, but she might have been thinking, well, is he really telling me he's gay, not bisexual? Um, she might not understand the parameters of you personally. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, very, it's a very difficult one because I don't think we're... Well, we're not encouraged to talk about it, really, are we? It's not, it's not in the... Well, it's not in the media much, you know, nobody, you know, it's not, it's just not something, you don't go into a pub and say, you know, well, what do you think about bisexual so-and-so on such and such a programme? It just, just doesn't come up, does it? I think it, no, not at all generally. I think I'm starting to find little avenues where I can bring it up. So I'm a lot more open with some of my friends than I have been previously. And that's been a massive relief. And again, that's probably only the last 18 months or so. Um, 
But you're right, it's not it's not something you... As an example, at work, that there are a couple of people who know, and they know through circumstances where I've been able to talk about that with them. And it's been mainly after a few drinks on a work-related thing. And it, that tends to loosen things up and make it a little less difficult to, to discuss. But generally in the office, I'm, I'm kind of seen as 2.4 kids straight and, and that's the end of it. Ironically, when I started working there, I'd done, I actually worked for Manchester Pride for a little while as a marketing coordinator. And um, I went from that to, to the current job. And there was a, I think they were doing a little bit of guesswork whether I was gay or not. And I found that, I mean, it didn't upset me exactly, but it was, it was almost like there were two options and they missed the actual one. Like they made an assumption I had to either be straight and when they found out that I had, at that point, a, a, a baby boy, they oh, it must, must be straight. And it's like, well, I'm not going to correct you with that because I'm, I'm kind of a bit disappointed that they're the two options you saw. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's really, really difficult. And I will go, I mean, I often ask similar questions in these interviews, but... I'm, going to, I'm trying to change them around a little bit. Um, so we'll go back a bit in a minute, but let's let's just stay in the here and now. Why is it important at the moment for you to feel that you want to at least express your bisexuality? And I suppose wear it on your sleeve a little bit and, and tell people that you are. Why, why is that important to you? There's kind of two reasons, I guess. The first was the most urgent in a way in that I ended up having quite sudden um, open heart surgery to replace a valve that was misformed from birth, effectively, and that had started giving me some serious health problems. And that was a little bit of a wake-up call. It was a moment to go, well, you, you've been living, not a lie, because that's not true. It's You've not been fully open with the people around you who care, who you care about. And it's a wasted opportunity. And also, why wouldn't you? Like, uh, either they accept you or they don't. And if they don't, then I'm not sure I wanted to be around them anyway. And then the, the second sort of prong of that, I guess, was my son came out recently as bi without knowing I was. And that really com completely shook me in a way. Not in a negative way. He came out so proud and he struggled to tell me for a little bit, but he came to me and told me. And that, that kind of, I felt like I had to catch him up a little. And I obviously wanted to have a conversation with him because he was, you know, as everyone who's been through that that kind of process knows, it's terrifying. And it's whoever you're talking to, even if you think you're going to get the reaction that you'd hope for, it's still terrifying. And he was really worried to come to me, even though I've been sort of dropping, not hints, but I think I've made it pretty clear that I'm an ally of LGBTQ community. Like that, he knew I'd work for Pride as an example. So I would have hoped he knew that was never going to be a problem. So I guess they're the two reasons that drove me on to, to, to become a little bit more open and, and to really did want to start. Did you say to him you were actually bisexual? So I left it for a couple of weeks and I, I didn't want to kind of overtake his moment. So we, I, we had a really good, honest conversation about him. And then I let him go away and think about that. And because they live with their mom and we, we see each other every couple of weeks, you know, infrequently, or frequently, but different lengths of time, I waited until he came back up and then I wanted to sit down and share how I'd been feeling and how, what I'd gone through and my experiences. But I didn't want to just jump on his, his moment at that point. It's been not difficult, but it's, 
he's been bullied a bit at school. But he's quite out at school. In some ways, it's really heartening. And I'm amazed that he's felt able to do that because I know I certainly wasn't in that position. But obviously, you know, I saw some of the bullying and some of the, the nastier side of that, of people coming out at school, not necessarily me, but friends of mine. And you obviously worry about your kids, don't you? And I, I, having been quite close to that process, I was worried about him. Let's go back a bit in terms of your own personal experience. Let's talk about dating guys. So tell us a bit about that and how that's been for you and what your experience is. I mean, you mentioned that you work for Pride and, and that kind of thing. What's your experience been of the LGBT sort of scene kind of thing? Has it been has it been welcoming? Has it been a good experience? You know, tell us a bit about that. I, I think generally Manchester Pride's well-intentioned, but I... I for, for one reason or other, didn't actually come out to them when I volunteered. I mean, they must have assumed something drove me to, to initially volunteer and then eventually I got a, a work paid for them for a couple of years. Um, and I think the B is quite invisible in it. To, not just Manchester Pride, but the LGBTQ community in general struggles to represent that B. And I think it's perhaps because we're so diverse. And not to say that the other letters aren't diverse, but I think particularly bisexual people or the bisexual community just represents such a spread of people that it might be quite hard to represent that. But that's no excuse for not trying. And what about the actual physical thing of going and, and, and dating guys or meeting guys? I mean, if you're gay or if you're in gay-facing sort of world and I was, you know, I'm, I'm bisexual, but very much at the beginning of my sort of bisexual journey, I was seeing more men and definitely pushed into that area through work and various other things. And so I used to go, you know, to, to the village and to other scenes around the country and things like that. And often I'd enjoyed it and I met guys and it was fun and all the rest of it. But there were elements of it that I didn't like um, and I felt uncomfortable with. And I felt certainly in those environments that if I had wanted to sort of come out and talk about my bisexuality, it might not have been met very well. Yeah, I've, I've experienced that as well. I've, I've spent a lot of time in the village. Um, I've, I've not so much dated men for a, a, a couple of people for short periods of time, um, probably because I wasn't quite comfortable with where I was at at that point. So I'm not going to say they were furtive experiences, but they were certainly not as... It, it, they were different to how I'd been with, with, with women. Um, but yeah, I, I, particularly the village in Manchester... I don't know, I feel like a bit of an imposter. And maybe that's because I'm married with kids. And maybe that's because I'm not gay or lesbian. I can't quite put my finger on it. But when I, even though I worked for Pride for a couple of years, and I, I think I've done my bit or I'm continuing to do my bit for the LGBT community. And I, and I will continue to do that. It, I don't necessarily feel represented or, ne- or comfortable even there. Not, that's not fair. I do feel comfortable there. But... There are moments where you realise that people have made an assumption about you and if they knew the full truth, I mean, the assumption being that I'm gay, if they knew the full truth, then maybe the reaction wouldn't be what I'd hoped for. Yeah, if you'd not had this moment, um, this health moment where it made you think about things, do you think you could have just gone through life sort of being in the situation of being in a straight-facing relationship, everyone assuming that you were, you were, you were straight, you know, you thinking every now and again privately about 
sexual things to do with men now and again, maybe acting that on that or not acting on that. But actually, at the end of the day, it just being, I suppose, in a way, in a way uh, whether it's in the mind or physically, a, a, a sort of a, 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 a something you do now and again, a, a recreational kind of thing, your little secret. Do you think you could have carried on through life in that way? Or do you think at some point you would have had to have sort of opened up about it? I think it would have come to a head. I, I, I very much, prior to my health um, scare, could feel it becoming more and more prevalent in my thoughts. And, I, you know, I, did, I didn't want to act on it whilst in a, you know, in a, in a loving marriage. It's not kind of who I am. Um, but equally, being able to discuss it. Uh, more, the, the, the thing is, I was open with my wife. We met seven years ago, so she knew from day dot. That was kind of, that's how I approached that relationship. So in the, in the space of the marriage, it was always there and always quite open. So I had that release. And how did she feel about it right at the very beginning when you told her? I think honestly at first she was a little bit taken aback and then quite quickly adapted and realised that was who I was and who she was falling for and eventually chose to marry. Um, I, I think because it's been there from day one, she's never had to suddenly get used to it or suddenly adapt. It's just always been the case. And, you know, I, I made sure that was clear from the very beginning, perhaps because of you know, I'd not been able to do that previously, or I hadn't done that the, the previous time I'd, you know, when I'd met the mum of the kids. What do you think it's added to your relationship, her knowing this from the outset? What what sort of, what is special about that sort of bond that you've managed to get between each other that she knows so much about you? We're really open with each other, and, and there's not much, well, there's nothing I don't think that I could not, that I couldn't talk to her about. Um and there'll be times when I've struggled with it more than others and I've been able to discuss it, whereas previously I wasn't able to do that. So that it's almost like a bit of a pressure valve. You can release the pressure just by talking. Often that's enough to, to just talk it through. I think on a positive, it, it, it's made me quite an empathetic person, I think, quite understanding, quite open, open-minded as well. There's, there's, you know, I'm not easily shocked and I'm certainly not easily offended either i'd like to think i give everything a fair hearing there will be people listening to this who are gay men straight women um straight men who uh, will think to themselves well well if he's not actually doing anything about that other side and he's you know happy in this heterosexual relationship then all intents and purposes he's he's straight what's all the fuss about what would you say to that well, I'd say it's not true. <laughs> I'd, I'd say I, I'm, I can't conveniently put that in a little box for you and let you... That, that's just not the case. I'd say if if that makes it easier for you to think of me like that, then I don't have a problem with that necessarily. But I'm not going to lie to you to make your life comfortable. So for me, I'm bisexual. I consider myself queer. And I'm not going to put that back in the box for anyone anymore. I've, I've, I'm, I'm 41 years old. I've done my days of hiding it and looking after other people's feelings and worrying about other people's shock when really there's nothing to be shocked about. The, the, the reality is I'm in a loving marriage. I've got two kids and another on the way with my new wife. And this is just a facet of who I am. It affects how I see the world. It affects how I interact with different people. And for me, it's all to the positive. So if you, you know, if somebody doesn't like that, then I'm afraid that's their problem and not mine. 
you've heard us talk about this, the whole thing, uh, the battle between emotional and sexual and whether or not they're, you know, people feel more attracted to one rather than the other. Sometimes this question annoys people because, of course, it's everyone's different and it depends on the people you meet and all the rest of it. But I think it's an important question just to convey to the wider world that sexuality is not just about sex. It's about lots and lots of other things. How do you see or how has your um, attraction to men and women or all genders um, shaped up? How, how, how have you found, found it over the years? You know, do you feel more an emotional attachment to one more than the other and sexual attachment more to one than more the other? Or is it very much about the, the individual? I think it's changed over time. And I would say that the, if you were looking at it as a percentage, which I know you've done on previous shows, it's probably got more yeah, and more. Yeah, that annoys people sometimes. So uh, you don't have to do No, that. it doesn't annoy me. It, it, I think what's interesting is it, it has changed. And if you'd asked me perhaps 18 months ago, I'd have given you a different answer. At the minute, it's fairly equal, to be honest. And, it, and that's sexually as well as emotionally. And I, I, feel, I feel like if, you know, if something happened between my wife and I and then there was, it's, you know, long down the line, back in the village or whatever, that's just, a, just as much a possibility as, as me finding a relationship with another woman. I, you know, I'm quite, I'm really close to my friends. I think that the date, my, I've got a, cl- a close group of friends who are all straight. I've obviously got other friends who are gay and, and a couple of bisexual friends, but most of my really close friends are straight. And, They've been amazing. They've been so supportive. And I think it's allowed them to open up to me in a way that they wouldn't have done before in a weird sort of way. They they sit, they come to me with problems and things that they need to talk about more than they do to each other. And I, and I think that's a positive. Absolutely. Now, you often see um, guys who are in um, long-term straight-facing relationships who may have been, you know, got married at 20 or whatever and, and then suddenly they get to 40, 45 and they suddenly burst out as in this sort of flamboyant, gay way and my suspicion is that a lot of them aren't actually gay, they probably are bisexual but they suddenly have to take one big leap the other way because they haven't mass, managed to do masses about it in their early years and so therefore they go through this moment and often it causes them lots of destruction and problems in their families and all the rest of it. They go through this moment of coming out again, as though, as though it's like, you know, they're 16, 17 again, and it's all, you're doing the teenage stuff in their 40s or 50s kind of thing. You've, avoid, you've avoided, avoided that. Um, and obviously that's really important in a way, because I think it can cause lots and lots of problems. But what, you know, there will be people listening as well who think to themselves, well, what does he do about his other urges? And there must be women who think that. You're current wife probably thought at the beginning what do and this is quite i know this is quite quite um, a personal question but how how do we convey to people out there that we can be bisexual and attracted to men and women different genders and deal with it in our own little way and still stay in for some people not everybody obviously in a monogamous relationship now i guess first off i've got an imagination <laughs> and when that fails as the when that fails as the internet, <laughs> and I'm not going to go into any more details, or I'll go purple. <laughs> I've already gone red, and and then the the other thing I'd sort of respond to that question with would be, if you're in a, a monogamous relationship with your girlfriend and you're straight, you're a straight man. How do you resist the urge to go and sleep with other women? That 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 would be, I think, a fair question to ask in return. 
and 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 the same applies to a straight woman who's in a, with a relationship with a man or any combination that how does anyone remain monogamous and that's through commitment making a decision to be with someone but being aware that you could at the same time have been with somebody else and still could potentially in the future but that's just not what I choose to do at the minute have you thought about or would you even consider something like I don't know if you ever discussed this with anybody, uh, you know, your partners. Would you ever consider anything like uh, ethical non-monogamy or anything like that? Would that be something that would attract you? I, I, yeah, to be honest, it would. But it's not going to suit my marriage that I'm in at the minute. It's not, you know, we've spoken really, like I said, we've been really open from the start. And that's, that wasn't on the table. So I went into things knowing that was the case and... That's the case. So that, that's kind of part of that arrangement that you make with someone when you make that commitment. Not to diminish any other form of commitment. That's I'm not suggesting for one minute marriage is the only option. But for me, that's the point when I said I'm literally committing to you. Now, you've got a good close relationship with, with your wife. She knows all about you. She obviously knows you're bisexual. I presume, I'm presuming she's straight. What do you think you being, being able to be open about the fact that you fancy guys and... You know, you're open about your own personality and you're just... Because I think we, you know, as bisexual people, we have different... You know, we, we, we have... I mean, we, it's, it's, it's difficult to say at the moment because we don't, we don't have a community. But I think we have got different traits that are very... Certain places are very similar. And we, at some point over the years, as things develop, I'm sure we'll realise there are different things that bisexual people think about or do or whatever. Different, You know, it'd be interesting to see how that emerges. The, cult, the bisexual culture, as it were. But just for your experience, has being able to you know, talk about guys and who you fancy and your tastes in music maybe or whatever it may be. Has that played quite well in terms of your relationship? You know, has it been... Because obviously, you know, the, the historic thing about men and women in straight relationships is as often people think of, of, of men having a particular... And I know things are changing, but there is still that sort of binary role kind of thing. And, you know, you know men take on certain aspects of of a marriage and women take on certain aspects of a marriage. Whereas I suppose you being bisexual instantly breaks that down in a way, doesn't it? In terms of the, the thinking patterns. Yeah, we don't, we try not to fall into traditional roles at home, um, which means I try and do, you know, as much to help as, as Tab does. Um, I, I think just openness in general allows you to communicate a lot easier and, I'm trying to think how to express it really. It it, it puts you in a, on a much level playing field. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It, it kind of you there's no kind of heteronormative dominant male role. I don't come in and set the rules. You know, I, it's not like the 1940s or 30s. It's I, I, I think we have a fairly modern relationship. It, it, without trying to sound cliche. Uh, and when it comes to just literally the whole thing about talking about sex yeah. and your tastes. And you know, and her taste, whatever, and things you might want to do, might not want to do, whatever. Do you find that you can literally talk really openly about that? You can say the things that turn you on, whatever, you know, and you can you can have a quite a liberal conversation with each other. Yeah, and and that's grown as we've as we've got to know each other more, and particularly the last eighteen months since I've been a lot more not open with her because she already knew, but open externally. So, not, not you know, there was a close group of people who knew for years and then recently it's started to open up so yeah since that since that kind of opening up with everyone else I've found that it's become a lot easier to talk to her about tastes and and things in bed or not in bed (laughs) 
Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, so you're talking to the world here, all about your uh, your love life. You're opening up to bisexual brunch. <laughs> well, I mean, and the question there, I suppose, is why did you decide you wanted to talk to us? What? Why do you think it's important to to communicate this, not just to friends and whatever, but to to other people out there? I think what you and, and um, Lewis and Nick are doing is really important, and I think the more people that are able to share their story, the more people realise that there are people in a similar situation or have elements of a similar situation, the more comfortable they feel in that position. I think for me, listening to the show for probably the last four or five months and then going back to older episodes as well, so working backwards, has really helped. It's been a massive part of me beginning to understand some of the more complex aspects of identifying as bisexual being aware of I mean I was already aware of invisibility but just being able to talk about it in a constructive way to other people and explain it because you have people on who come at it from different angles and different perspectives people who are studying it as PhDs and it just it's education and awareness isn't it ultimately and the more people can talk about this and the more people do talk about it the more and I hate using the word normalized because it's, it's already normalized but the more normalised to other people it becomes, I guess. What's your suspicion of how many people out there are bisexual? Let's just think about not some... I mean, there will there'll be quite a lot of um, bisexual men who are in gay-facing relationships. We know that, and uh, um, I'm one, you know. Um, but... And it's no problem. My partner's got happy with it. It's not an issue. We've got over over all, that, all those issues. But what's your suspicion about the amount of men that are out there who are in... Um, straight-facing relationships who, you know, it might just be something every now and again that they indulge in or want to indulge in or whatever in terms of the, the you know, relationships or friendships or whatever with, with you know, uh, people of the same sex. Um, what's your suspicion of how big this is, is what I'm basically trying to say? I think it's a lot bigger than it, than it would seem on the surface or than it would seem from people initially talking about it, I guess. Um, just things listening to the conversation about straight men having sex with men you know it's not for me to judge or label someone but I'd certainly classify that as somewhere along the the Kinsey scale away from the straight end that for me would be my personal feeling about it that's not to you know impose that label on anyone else but I, I think there's an awful lot of people out there who are somewhere away from those polar ends of that scale and I think one of the most exciting developments coming up is the census data. When the, the, up, That was really a pivotal moment for me, to be able to complete that and tick that box and know that hopefully when the results come back, that speaks volumes about the state of play in the UK. I, I, you know, I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, but you do worry or you wonder, don't you? Because um, isn't it supposed to be, the, in inverted commas, the head of the household that fills it in? Uh, or that that worries me slightly that not everybody will be, be able to be completely open about it. That the figures will probably be less than we think they are because, or that they appear because people aren't necessarily always able to be, you know, completely open about it. That's my slight concern. I, I think you're right, and I think there'll be a lot of cases where that's missed because of that. But in a case like mine, where I'm in a straight presenting relationship, but I'm I'm not straight, I think that's. A, a small step towards more people being able to come out and identify. Uh, but you're right, it's not gonna, it's not a cure-all. Not everyone's going to be able to feel comfortable ticking that box and for various reasons. Now, you're married with kids, um, or you've got a kid coming on the way. 
do you think there are other areas as well? Lewis often talks a bit about this. Other areas that, you know, we have this LGBT world, which is supposed to be set up to help everybody who's LGBT and all the rest of it. But if you're bisexual, whether it, be, whether it comes down to the, the practicalities or even emotions or whatever it may be, where is there to go for bisexual dads, for example? I mean, it, the, 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 the issue does present, doesn't it? There's an issue there, you know, just in communication with your children, maybe, or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. I mean, what do you, I mean, I know that obviously we have gay dads now or whatever, but do you think there's a need for something extra for people who present themselves as, as bisexual? Yeah, I, I, I think the more spaces that we have, the more community that we build, the, the, the better things are going to be for everyone. And for me, that sort of resource would be invaluable, particularly now with, with my eldest having come out. I think that space would be as useful for him as for me as well. Um, and maybe a space for parents of, you know, sorry, for, yeah, for parents of bisexual kids as well. So that must be the other way around. Um, I'd certainly be interested in, in looking at that. And I suppose finally, um, what do you think is the best thing about being able to be openly bisexual? What's what's the best thing about being bisexual, General? The best thing about being able to be openly bisexual is the weight being lifted and the pressure valve almost being released. That's the, the best thing about being open about it. The best thing about being bisexual, I think, is a wider perspective and a more open mindset than a lot of people generally have. I think that's what I... That's what I take away from it. And, yeah, and this is just an additional question I should have asked earlier, really, but it's something I always find quite interesting. Do you, is there a difference for you in the type of men and women that you're... This is really a physical thing, you know, more than anything, but have you found a difference in the type of men and women that you're attracted to? You know, so, so for example, I've found myself generally, in terms of men and women, attracted to fairly soft, gentle kind of people... I don't know, it's, it's that kind of, they're, they're the kind of people I tend to be attracted to, whereas I know other people have said they're attracted to really hard blokes and really feminine women or whatever. Has there been has there been a pattern there for you? I think in terms of guys, it's probably slightly more feminine than me. I, you know, I wouldn't consider myself necessarily very feminine uh, or you know, having feminine traits. Um, and with women, it's perhaps, I don't know, I, I, I'm trying to think back over a couple of relationships and it's, I wouldn't say there necessarily is a pattern, but I think what they have in common is uh, an openness and, a, and an intelligence. I think that's pretty much what turns me on more than anything, that, that humour and intelligence. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because the great thing about being bisexual, I think, is the fact that all these things, all these misconceptions about things and these sort of stereotypes they just you just throw them all up in the air and see what see what see what falls you know what i mean you could try it all out really in a way you know what i mean that's so, the real strength of it isn't it it's it's all open and all up for experimentation i guess it, not in my position but in in some people's positions well you've got your imagination right? that's yeah we always resort to that or the internet <laughs> i think we should do a whole program about your imagination <laughs> oh don't i don't be r-rated <laughs> Um, Andy, it's been lovely. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Bisexual Brunch. Can I just thank you as well, Ash? Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Bisexual Brunch is produced with love by MIM. And if you like what we do, why not support us on Patreon? Visit patreon.com forward slash bisexual brunch. Thank you. 
distinct nostalgia is home to some of the great women of British sitcom. We've got interviews with Felicity Kendall from The Good Life and Wendy Craig from Butterflies. There's Linda Robson and Leslie Joseph from Birds of a Feather. Plus Matilda Thorpe, who starred in The Desmonds, and Sherry Hewson and Amanda Barry, recalling their carry-on days. And now three more queens of sitcom are joining us over the summer. Sally Tomzit relives her Man About the House days. She was very good at burning toast, if I remember. Yeah, that's true life. <laughs> I can't cook to save my life. While Anna Karen tells us how she created Olive in On the Buses. They said we want her to be very plain. So we went out for a day and sort of looked around all the bus stations and things. And I saw this woman who looked just like Olive. The hair parted and the glasses and terrible. And I went back and said, that's how I'd like her to be. In fact, the very first episode, I had a fringe for half of it and then no fringe for the second half because they wouldn't go back and shoot again. So, you know, it, it just stuck. So you were part of the creation of Olive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Plus, Judy Cornwall, who was Hyacinth's sister Daisy in Keeping Up Appearances, also pops in for a chat. It was very funny. On the on the very first day in the studio, our first scene, Onslow and Daisy, was in bed. <laughs> so we climbed into the bed, lay down and pretended we were asleep, and then the whole bed collapsed and our legs went in the air. And the audience were just uncontrollable. They were falling about. The women of great British sitcom. Available this summer on Distinct Nostalgia. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Listen out for new episodes and scroll through our archives for past programmes wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. So Bisexual Brunch um, continues and we've something of a treat for you now as we're joined by the director of the Vagina Museum. Yes, there is such a thing as the Vagina Museum. In fact, I'm, I gather there's actually a penis museum somewhere, Iceland or somewhere, I'm not sure. <laughs> the director is Florence Schechter and she joins us now. Um, Florence, first of all, just tell us, what is the Vagina Museum? Oh, well, it's what it says on the tin. <laughs> it is a museum of vaginas, vulvas, and the gynecological anatomy, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, we uh, are a the world's first bricks and mortar museum dedicated to such a such a topic. And I gather you launched actually um, last year, didn't you, during the whole COVID situation? Uh, well, so the whole project actually started in 2017. Oh, right. Okay. We started doing pop-ups, but we got our first building, yes, in autumn of 2019. So we were open for about six months uh, before we had to close doors, which was which was a bit sad. It wasn't quite enough time to like really get going and really build that momentum. I was really looking forward to our first summer in Camden Market. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, but we've, uh, we've been doing all right during lockdown, actually. We've had loads of online support. Um, our, our sort of, what's the word, fans <laughs> are super, super supportive and we love them so much. Um, and we've managed to reopen about three times uh, <laughs> during lockdown because of varying government restrictions. I'm hoping this one will stick. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to open the Vagina Museum. Why did we need it? Why I decided to do it was um, just because um, I just love vaginas so much. Uh, <laughs> and it's because I discovered there's a penis museum in Iceland, but at the time there was no vagina equivalent. And I was just like, that is just so unfair. Uh, it's just like sexism 
101. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, we could actually do some real good. You know, it's such a stigmatized part of the body. Um, so many people, you know, don't go to their doctor when they're having gynecological symptoms because they're too embarrassed. Um, there are people who don't know like how to take control of their own sexual pleasure. There are, like, there's so many real world consequences of that taboo that I was like, Do you know what? A museum is a really good way of actually addressing that because museums are used by like communities, by societies, by countries to um, set narratives, to tell communal stories. Um, and so by having a vagina museum, we're saying like, as a community, this is a part of the body that we should be celebrating, that we should be talking about. Did you face opposition from anybody when you were thinking of opening it? a small amount of opposition but uh surprisingly actually the support was way way bigger um and i've kind of <laughs> broken down the people who don't like the vagina museum into a few different groups they tend to follow sort of a type of storyline and there's like the type of person which i call the morality brigade where they're like oh you know vaginas is a private part of the body we shouldn't be talking about it um you know keep it for behind closed doors uh, and then when i tell them the stuff about like how many people um you know are for example it takes seven and a half years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis in this country um and it's because of attitudes like that and usually when i explain that people are like oh yeah no i get it and uh, actually they come around really easily um, then uh, there are just trolls. Uh, <laughs> lots of people like to use the Vagina Museum as an opportunity to make a joke about insert person they don't like. Um, like there's always, people always say like, oh, I heard there already is a Vagina Museum. It's called the House of Lords or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like kind of funny the first time you hear it, but then you're like, oh, the crux of the joke is that you don't like vaginas and you also don't like the House of Lords. So, you know, and then there are the transphobes who really dislike the fact that we are trans inclusive. It's, it was just like a, a stand we had to make right at the beginning. You know, it wasn't something we could be in the middle of. I didn't feel like that was something we could do or we should do. Uh, so we took a, a very strong stance early on and there are... There are people in the world who don't like that. There's a penis museum in Iceland, but there's also been, or there are several, aren't there, dotted around museums that focus on sex. I think there's probably one in Holland. I'm sure there's one in Holland. And I think there's one in Scandinavia or whatever. What's the difference between what they're doing and what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's loads of uh, museums of sex and they are great. But, you know, they are museums of this specific, like activity i suppose whereas i think something that a lot of people don't realize um or at least like they do know subconsciously but when we're talking about morality especially and um what's the word like appropriateness of the topic the reason people say vulvas are inappropriate to talk about is because they think about sex but the thing is is i use my vulva for all sorts of things uh, i use it for menstruating i use it for giving i haven't used it for giving birth yet but i might one day um you know i use it for hiding bags of cocaine in who knows you use your vagina for like all sorts of things it's not just sex and of course, That's down, why. down down through the ages, I mean, you know, museums, obviously, a lot of the time, the nature of museums is you're often talking about history. And of course, interpretations of anything to do with the penis or the vagina or whatever has changed, doesn't it? Throughout, throughout the, the, our attitudes towards these bits of our anatomy have altered, haven't they? So presumably you explore some of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we are a really small space. People sometimes expect us to be bigger than we are, but we have only space for 
one a small exhibition at a time. Uh, so we have to you know, we have to be quite selective in what we address. But it is absolutely tr- absolutely true that attitudes towards vulvas have massively changed across times and cultures. Like in um, uh, our oldest civilizations that we know of, Sumeria, Mesopotamia, Assyria, Babylon, um, there was this goddess called Ishtar, and she was the goddess of sex and also war. It's quite interesting combo. Um, but she was a goddess uh, that vulva worship was part of her cult. Um, and like, you know, like it was like part of of the most important thing about her was that her vulva was the most amazing thing in the whole world. There's a story about how um, she was walking one day and she sort of stops to take a break and she looks down at her vulva and literally the translation says, her vulva was so wondrous to behold, the young woman Inanna applauded herself. <laughs> so I just love the idea of like a woman like looking down between her legs and going, fuck me, well done. <laughs> the ultimate self-love, it's so brilliant. What a good story. So I mean, the other thing I'm really interested in is when you kind of set out your mission, it was really important to you to be LGBTQI inclusive, wasn't it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, being a bi person myself, that was really, really important to me um, because, you know, if you're not going to stand up for yourself, who is? But also, you know, like more generally, when we're talking about vulvas, um, you have to include in that experience uh people who don't conform to compulsory heterosexuality um so it's like embedded in everything we do you know we never assume sexuality in any of our like communications um we include lgbt stories in our exhibitions uh we do loads of events it's really funny because every pride month like we actually don't put the flag in our logo because like we don't need to <laughs> like we we celebrate lgbt stories all year <laughs> that sometimes doing a like pride specific program seems it's silly because we're like but we're always doing it yeah and also i mean i noticed during pride season so many corporate businesses and entities just using that silly rainbow background on their logos on linkedin etc and it drives me absolutely nuts so yeah if you if you're doing it all the time why would you need to do it for a special time of the year you wouldn't would you presumably um in doing this you've learned a few things yourself haven't you along the way you know you you obviously decided you want to do this as something really important but along the way you must have learned new things about vulvas <laughs> just to, is there anything interesting interesting that you've you've discovered along the way and which in the future you might want to explore a little bit more in terms of uh, what the museum's doing yeah i mean i've learned a lot of things i've been doing this for over four years <laughs> i've learned everything from history to like bio codes it's been an extremely random journey people often ask me like what is it like being the director of the vagina museum and i'm like it's spreadsheets just like every other job but is, is there is a fun vagina fact um i think one of my favorite things that i learned is that during your reproductive years your vagina is about pH 3.8 to 4.2 or something, which is about the pH of wine. Uh, so, you know, I like both. They have many things in common. <laughs> it's a good excuse to drink more wine, actually, isn't it? Be yeah, more appreciative. Yeah, more practice, exactly. Great, that's going to be my... That's, gonna, that's what I'm going to tell my husband next time he tells me off for opening yet another bottle. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is the thing about the atti- attitudes we were talking about the, you know how people our relationship with different bits of the anatomy has changed over the years there is a, you know the, the penis has, has, has come to symbolize all sorts of things and has often 
you know, shouted about and people, there's pride in it and all sorts of different things. But the 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 vulva is often discredited isn't it and disregarded and seen as a dirty thing to talk about and something you just wouldn't possibly even contemplate seeing and do you know what i mean so so that i always find fairly fairly interesting obviously it's to do with patriarchy and blah 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 all that kind of stuff but has that changed? Was there a time when, you mentioned earlier on, obviously, um, a little bit about the history, but have there been other times whereby, you know, it has been something that's been really celebrated? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so archaeology is really interesting because it's it's very difficult to tell or to make any kind of very certain, uh, what's the word, assumptions, I suppose, about what people were like pre-writing. Um, but... Vulvas definitely were something that prehistorical people were obsessed with. Uh, the oldest representation of a vulva we have in prehistoric art is about 40,000 years old. The oldest of a penis we have is about 30,000 years old. So it took about 10,000 years for humans to go, oh, I guess I could do penises as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then they've been doing them forever since scrolling cock and balls on every wall to yeah. catch up. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> to catch up. It, it, interesting, interesting. So, Florence, for you, being bi, how, you know, how do you, how does the Vagina Museum expand your sense of being bi, if it does? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, because I suppose you probably get a bit of this, uh, dating a man currently, and so very much people assume I'm straight and it's really frustrating actually um and so I can be like oh well I founded a vagina museum so it's almost like I get to legitimize my minus <laughs> because like there's definitely this like feeling of bi erasure that like unless you because you know if you date a woman you're a lesbian if you date a man you're straight and like it's very difficult to to show you know, to be visible. Um, so it's very nice in that respect. Um, but it's also just like the networking and talking to people and like, you know, our volunteers, for example, are like overwhelmingly queer. Our staff are overwhelmingly queer. And it's really nice to be in an environment where that's actually a thing that's like normal, you know? Like, I don't know if you ever get this. Sometimes it's like you and like one other person in the room is like, here, queers are here. We got to look after ourselves. But we're now in a I'm now in an environment at the Vagina Museum where we're actually the majority <gasps> yeah shocking situation. eh <laughs> I, actually, I think also it's, it is really nice if I mean I find I my husband is is straight and you know I'm married to him and increasingly it, we have quite a flamboyant group of friends I would say maybe they're not I wouldn't necessarily call them majority queer but they're quite flamboyant so they're very tolerant of all kinds of behaviors and and they're just they're not really they're not really straight in my mind I mean I've said that I've tried to wind them up many a time about none of you are really that straight but they haven't gone for the queer label yet but the, the thing that I always think about is uh, if you do have a line of work that is around your sexual orientation then it kind of thrives in that space, even if in other areas, other people might just say, oh, well, why don't you just kind of let it go and stop talking about it kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I find this with a lot of my different intersecting identities. Um, like I'm Jewish, for example, and uh, I grew up in a very, like I went to Jewish school. Um, all my family is Jewish, like literally no one in my family has ever intermarried. Um, and then when I went to uni, it was my first time um, 
interacting with people on a more long-term basis that weren't Jewish. And something they always told me was like, oh my God, you talk about being Jewish like all the time. You know, can't you just like, like, can't you just be normal? You know, was the assumption. And uh, it was so frustrating because they were like telling me like, oh God, your identity is, is so uncomfortable. You know, can you please not keep shoving it in my face? And I get the same thing with my sexuality. Um, but I mean, the, the nice thing is that like, <laughs> I guess like a queer allyship is something that's kind of um, uh, people in the left really want to do. Jew allyship is not, not something people do as much, but uh, yeah, absolutely. And so what it means is like when you're in that environment, when, like when I get to Jewish spaces, for example, like my Jewish identity thrives, when I get to queer spaces, my queer identity thrives. Um, and yeah, I mean, yes, that's all, yes. Yeah. yeah so it kind of Feels. it's kind of a little badge of honor so to speak in a way yeah 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 like you can wear it loud and proud and uh, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it yeah. tell us a little bit about your bisexual sort of um journey and your story in regards to that because everybody's story is different and you know one of the things we're trying to do on bisexual brunch is to make people aware of that the fact that everybody's got a different story to tell and because what we're discovering actually is there's lots and lots of people out there who haven't even well some people have contacted us who haven't even thought of themselves as bisexual because they don't hear the word talked about anywhere you know i i saw some debate on the tv the other day it was about supposedly lgbtqi stuff and, and everything every one of those letters was mentioned in some way shape or form apart from the b do you know what i mean it just did not get mentioned in any way shape or form when did you realize that you were definitely bisexual uh, probably puberty. Just hormones came. I knew exactly what I wanted. Um, and lots of Xena Warrior, the princess. Um, <laughs> definitely <laughs> had a big impact on me. Um, yeah, I like. I kind of always knew. Um, and it was something that I was quite comfortable talking about with some of my friends, even if they weren't comfortable talking about it. Um, like, a I think I only had like one officially queer friend at school uh in stark contrast to like nowadays where way way more queer friends um but having said that i really struggled actually like doing anything about it because i had no like script do you know what i mean like you when you're a teenager you kind of look to things like TV shows, um, the news, your friends, movies, uh, for like, how do I do this being adult thing, you know, of which relationships and sex is definitely a part of that. And I had no like format to follow. So I, I really didn't, I only like dated men for ages because I was like, I don't know how to date women. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to talk to them. But obviously I knew how to talk to men because examples of that are everywhere. Uh, so I spent a long time actually not really living it even though i i knew i was bi i just like didn't know how to do it <laughs> and has that yeah. has that led to and did that lead to um a degree of you know sort of angst and and worry and concern about what we what was happening to you and because a lot of people don't realize do they and there's, there's, we have this whole trope don't we of of people going through you know some kind of um you know being confused and obviously we're not confused because it's just it just happens we just like we like, you know, different genders, but but people don't necessarily because that's not there in the in front of you to say that's okay, it can cause issues, can't it? I mean, was it a problem for you in terms of, you know, did it 
did it mix you up in terms of your mind and what you were doing and how you felt about the world, as it were? Um, I mean, I don't think I was ever like confused. I don't think I was ever like, oh, maybe I really am straight or maybe I really am lesbian. I, I, I just, it was more like FOMO. I was just like, I'm missing out on all these beautiful opportunities because I don't know how to do it. And I was, I was more sad about that. <laughs> Yeah, that is something that resonates with us when, when Lewis is around. Lewis and I often talk about all the people that we could have shagged, basically, if we'd only got our act together or had some kind of, some kind of instruction a bit sooner. But, you know, oh. you, can't, you, can't, you, can't waste, you can't waste your life worrying about all that. But, you know, we do like to ruminate on it sometimes. Yeah. Oh, I definitely feel that. <laughs> so how, how important is it to you? To, for, because we, we get a lot of, well, the backlash that we get... Not get a huge backlash, to be honest, but the, the negativity we get on bisexual brunch is from people saying, why do these people always want to keep going on about their sexuality? Blah, blah, blah. Why do they have to keep, you know, kind of think, why is it important to you, do you think, for, for people to know that you are bisexual? Uh, well, so that no one has to go through what we went through. I think I, it so annoys me when people are like, oh, why can't you stop talking about it? It's like, why can't you stop listening? Like, go away if you don't like it. I don't care what you feel. Like, I'm not so, so dumb. I hate that. I hate that so much. But um, like, yeah, we have to keep talking about it. One, because like the straights talk about being straight all the time. Can you imagine if we went to someone and be like, can you actually stop talking about your wife now? Like, I feel like you're shoving your lifestyle down my throat. <laughs> No one says that to the straights, even though they do exactly the same as us. Um, but it's because like, we're, you know, their kids, they need those scripts. They need those examples to look for so that they can say, oh, yeah, I'm not confused. I'm just I'm just like Florence. I'm just like Ashley. I'm just like Nikki. Oh, I get it. You know, that's that's why we do it for the, for the future. Generation. <laughs> but there's, but there's, also, there's also an issue, isn't there, around you know, the difference between being out and out gay, I suppose, and then us, those of us who see ourselves as bisexual or, you know, in the middle or whatever we are, whatever you want to describe it, pansexual, whatever, is that, that in a way, being gay has become accepted, doesn't it? It's become a, a lifestyle, you know, you can, people can get married and all the rest of it. It's like it's it's aping the, the straight world in a way. And, and we're not doing that. And I think people are, are still a little bit uncomfortable about that. We've still got some way to go, haven't we, on this, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you're so right about this, like, aping of the straight world. And I think that's, that's the straights doing it. That's, um, you know, them trying to understand queer identities. And the way they do that is by using this, like, cis heteronormative patriarchal model and saying, okay, I, I feel like I understand that because it fits something I already know. Um, and, you know, that that's why I think it's so easy, so much easier to understand because they're like, oh, I get it. You're like gay, like I'm straight. It's just like the other way around. Whereas to say like, oh, I understand your bias is so much more difficult. Like for me, I genuinely cannot understand the idea of being attracted to someone because of their gender. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I genuinely cannot understand it. Like, I, who I'm attracted to is is based off, are they funny? Are they interesting? Are they, uh, like, ambitious? Are they whatever? Like, gender never comes into it. And so, like, I genuinely can't understand what it's like to be gay. And I think perhaps that's why straight people find it difficult to accept bi people because there's just no, like, no frame of reference for what that feels like. 
And what about your your own relationship? Are you um, with a straight man, a bi man? What's what situation? S- S- straight man for my sins. <laughs> and how does? Don't he, worry, me too. Me too. How, how, how does he deal with your bisexuality? I was I'm completely fine with it. I don't think it was ever an issue. I mean. He's dating the woman who started a vagina museum. Like he's he's a very he's a man who's very comfortable in his masculinity for sure. Uh, he's never threatened by me. Actually, it's one of the things I really love about him is like he he will watch me like going on stage, he'll come to like events and stuff and see me talk, and he's like, I just I love that you're confident. That's great. And then that goes for everything. It means he's comfortable with anything I do, including my sexuality. He's like, I don't see why that would affect us. Yeah, something we've come to a couple of times recently, because we're always talking about and rabbiting on about bisexuality, but then we started to think about how many people do we actually know who are bisexual? And we know fair people on the internet and things like that, because that's the world we live in. Um, but Nikki, I, Nikki Lewis and I were talking about this recently, and, we, and all of us could only count a handful of people on one hand of people we knew were directly bisexual, people we could go and have a coffee with or whatever. Um, how many would you say you know? Oof. Actually, quite a few. Um, I mean, I have colleagues uh, because it's something like we obviously talk about quite a lot. Um, Friends. Um, I find most of the queer women I know are bi, actually. Um, If a woman is queer, it's most likely if I know them that they're bi. Um, Which stands up to the stats that are there that we may be the biggest part of the LGBT bubble. Um, I think the thing with men is I think they just... um... I think there's a, I don't know, I think there's a little bit more of a stigma about being bisexual mm-hmm. and a man at the moment. I think that will change. Yeah. But I think I think it's, um, you know, for one reason or another, there seems to be more um, awareness of bisexual women. Sometimes that's not necessarily always a positive thing, is it? Because of the way in which bisexual women are seen in the media and all the rest of it in terms of, you know, a sexual object for men and all that kind of thing. Mm. But I think, I think, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of bi men who are still very much, um, I, mean, I think there's a lot of men, even, you know, supposedly in those common straight men who haven't quite worked out what they are yet. Um, just going back to the Vagina Museum, um, you've got an exhibition on at the moment, is that right? About periods? Is that is that correct? Yes. Tell us a bit yeah, about it's that. Pe- <laughs> it's called Periods, A Brief History. Um, and it is a brief history of periods, all the way from uh, cave art of people menstruating to modern day activism against period poverty and that sort of thing. Um, It goes through a bit about what people thought about periods in the past, um, what kind of period products people used. Uh, We've got some like uh, old objects on display, some, you know, like tampons from the 1960s. and it's uh yeah it's really it's really fun and also it's like i think it's like the nice sort of balance between like fun like oh that's funny and like oh the world is a hellhole uh, <laughs> uh, like it tells the story of um mary kenner who uh, you probably won't remember these but our parents if they were using pads they would have used sanitary belts which are like these bits of elastic that go around your waist and you clip before you had adhesives on the pads um and that was invented by a woman called mary kenner in the early 20th century it's black woman who she waited to get her patent and then she goes to the um the companies to try and sell her product uh sell her invention and they immediately say no they're like no you're you're a black woman what this is like a a country where racial segregation is still law uh so they wait for the patent to run out 
they steal her idea and then they sell it and mass produce it and um and she doesn't receive a penny for it uh so we have like a whole section dedicated to telling her story um to in our own mind away try and right some wrongs um absolutely i've never heard of that actually that is and i i mean i know about the belts but yeah gosh that is so upsetting isn't it but anything you could do to kind of rectify her story it's all to the good I was going to say, like, unfortunately, we can't give her the millions she's probably owed. Um, yeah, that's a but... shame that you can't maybe, yeah, do a little donation for everybody that comes to see and then she gets a penny or something. But yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe that can be on the horizon at some point if you expand. We can tell her story. We can definitely You can that. definitely tell her story. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, it's something that's affected people massively down the years, isn't it? There was always a stigma, wasn't there, around just the whole thing of people having... You know, girls having periods, you know, girls were never told about it. It was a taboo and it would suddenly happen. And you know what I mean? Hopefully they had a a mum that was there to sort of talk to them about it and help them through and all the rest of it. But there's some horrendous stories going back, isn't there, of of people really struggling with just the whole notion of it, you know, and not that long ago, really. Probably into the, probably the, you know, the sort of the early 1900s or even the 1950s, probably. There was probably a lot of stigma and taboo around just the whole thing of having a period in the first place, which is ridiculous, isn't it? Stigma is something that periods have for a very long time been attached uh, to, um, but it's really like culturally specific. So it's quite a Western idea or Western sort of norm that you wouldn't know what period is until you had one because in other cultures where for example you would like grow up around women um and there were rituals around periods whether they were good or bad rituals you would probably know what a period was because it would be happening around you but it's definitely like in you know the west where it's like oh god everything has to happen behind closed doors and you don't talk about anything and you know like you have your babies at hospitals far away all this sort of thing um but yeah, it's. De- I mean, I know loads of people who have come in and said, like, I literally didn't know about a period until I was bleeding manicures and I thought I was going to die, um, which is terrible. It's terrible. I'm so happy for my mum, who is very awkward about these sort of things, but also like very feminist in her own way. She's like a very quiet feminist. And she said she gave me a book that was all about periods with this like feeling of I can't have this conversation with you. So just read this book and let the book do it for me. <laughs> But at least that's direction, right? So, yeah. I mean, I think something we talk, we hear a lot about period poverty now, don't we? The, the fact that actually there are loads of women and girls in this country that actually can't afford sanitary protection. And I know Scotland passed a lot for, uh, to take the tax away didn't it? and actually to give some free products in schools and, and things like that. And we still kind of haven't quite got there. And there's actually, uh, if you know the activist Nimco Ali, the FGM activist, she has a really incredible story in her book about... Um, a refugee coming to England as a you know she's probably about 12 years old and she gets her period on the voyage and there's literally nothing in the camps to use for the you know and it's just that's happening to people every day around the world so I think you know anything you can do around that is still properly taboo busting oh absolutely I mean uh if anyone's listening to this knows about bloody good period they're a charity um who distribute period products to refugees and asylum seekers because in this country they get like 36 pounds a week or something it's appalling nothing it is it's absolutely i mean okay i'll have my political rant later (laughs) Um, uh, but like if you get your period that's like easily a fifth a quarter of your allowance and like that's genuinely the choice between like food 
and having a pad. Um, so she started this um, this charity. So you can like donate period products. Please, please go on their website and do that. Yeah, so cool. So the Vagina Museum then. Yeah, who's who's visiting the Vagina Museum? What's the profile of your your visitors? Is it uh, is it is it more men than women? Is it young people? Who's who's coming to the Vagina Museum? Do you think? So far. Um, well, everyone, uh, loads of, because we're based in the middle of Camden Market, we get all kinds of people walking past. We get people of all ages, uh, from all sorts of cultures, different countries, different types of jobs. Uh, super interesting. Um, definitely like our core audience are sort of women in their like 20s and 30s. Um, definitely like overrepresented in, uh, queer like they're much more queer than the general population uh much more left-leaning than the general population um but actually the people who are coming through the doors is we've had everyone from like 11 year olds who have written on the feedback cards like i can't wait to tell my friends in school um to like doctors who are like i learned something that i didn't learn in my degree at this exhibition uh to like proper second wave feminists who are like i wish i had this in the 1960s when we were doing women's lib and you know like we and and loads of men as well by the way like we get um my favorite type of man because there are definitely you know how you do audience segmentation um my favorite type of man who comes in is the single dad uh who that's definitely happened quite a few times where they're like i've got daughters they're about to go through puberty i have no idea how to have this conversation because like no one had it with me and there's no one else to have this conversation with them so i'm going to take you to this museum Hopefully we can start it there. And if you ask a question that I don't know the answer to, there'll be someone I can ask. That's so brilliant. Absolutely love that, Florence. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So you're open only a, two or three days a week. Is that right, specifically? Tell us when you're open to, to visit. Yeah, well, so the best thing to do is just check our website because it's like so, it's so prone to change. We're currently open Fridays to Sundays because um, like... The, most of the people who are visiting London are domestic tourists who tend to do it on the weekends. So that like, it would be way too quiet to be feasibly possible, to be financially possible um, if we were open Monday to Thursday. So we are currently open Friday to Sunday. Just check the website. You have to book a ticket in advance. It's completely free. It's just so we can like manage capacity. And also we have to take part in track and trace as a museum. Of course. Florence, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Bisexual Brunch is produced with love by MIM. And if you like what we do, why not support us on Patreon? Visit patreon.com forward slash bisexual brunch. Thank you. I am a journalist and broadcaster and I'm 37 years old. I live in London with my husband. I'm originally from West Yorkshire. About five years ago, I had a single episode of psychosis which led to suicidal ideation. I'm Devon Rees and this... Is Life Matters. Brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. We'll have our personal story from bisexual journalist Nikki Hodgson. Now that I'm older and I look back, I think in my teens, I was beginning to realise that I was bisexual, but I couldn't put a name to it. There were definitely relationships that I had with girls growing up that were more than just friendships, but I couldn't really put my finger on what they were. On top of all this angst, all this pressure that I was under, you know, to perform... I wasn't really able to be myself. I certainly felt like I can't live like this anymore. Our aim with these shows is to discuss solutions and raise awareness of very important issues which touches many of us. This is Life Matters with Bisexual Brunch's very own Nikki Hodgson and actor Dovan Rees. Listen within your podcast provider by searching for Life Matters 
and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. So Bisexual Brunch continues. Quite a bumper edition of Bisexual Brunch uh, this time for you. Um, Plenty for you to get your teeth into and to keep playing over and over again in your uh, box set world. Uh, I'm told plenty of people listen to us um, one after the other uh, and binge on me, Nikki and Lewis. Um, (laughs) The mind boggles, really. Um, But... uh, Anyway, uh, what we're going to talk about now um, is the issue of keeping alive um, being bisexual when you're in a straight or gay-facing relationship for any length of time. Um, It can be quite difficult. Now, um, the American actor uh, Anna Paquin, she got um, married a little while ago, and at the time she also came out as bisexual. And she's been talking about her experience of being married to a straight man and being bisexual. And she's been saying how hard it's been and how difficult it's been to sort of express her bisexuality for people to recognise that she's still bisexual. And it brought me to thinking, all three of us here are openly bisexual, publicly bisexual. Everyone knows, or most people know, that we're bisexual. We talk about it all the time. And people criticise us for some of us talking about it all the time as well. But how can people who are in straight or gay-facing relationships who... Um, have probably been open with their partners, and the partners haven't got necessarily got a problem with it. How can they? But of course, they that most of them are probably in monogamous relationships by this point. How can they um, keep alive the whole bisexual thing in terms of their identity? What can they do to sort of keep it keep it moving, keep it going? How? I mean, it's very hard, isn't it? Because you know, if you if you do bang on about it a lot and you're not in a situation like we're in, where you legitimately can, uh, your partner might get a bit peed off about it. I don't know. You know, what What can people do, both, you know, internally in terms of privately within their relationships, but also publicly, to sort of make people aware that it's still there? Because there will be people out there that think it's weird if you keep banging on about your sexuality, because you sort of, you know, it's why most people, they'd say most people don't do that. I'm... I'm straight or I'm gay. I'm not going on about it all the time, or whatever, because it's because it's accepted. So, what do we do? How do what should people I, do, Lewis? I think it's about doing it in in the way that's most genuine to you, and also subtle. So, for example, last weekend, Jamie, my twelve year old um, son, and my um, my other half were talking about a TV presenter called Joel McDermott, um, it, who's a UK presenter. And they were like, what's his name? Joel, Joel. And I was just like, Joel McDreamy. And it was like, it made both of them laugh, but it was it was just a reminder to both of them that, that I was bisexual and that I thought that this presenter was hot. Um, like, it doesn't need to be something I say every day or something like that, but it's like, oh, just those regular little, oh yeah, he finds certain celebrities that are male attractive, stuff like that. I think also, you know, get some bisexual art for your house or something. It's like, I've obviously got like, magazine covers and, and stuff that I've done as, as, as a bisexual activist. You know, this is a picture of me on the mantelpiece where I'm on stage at Pride in London with a big bisexual t-shirt on. So it's like, it's there. Um, and I think it is just about, sometimes they'll, I think it's about not hiding it, if that makes sense. It's about those moments where you would be at a barbecue and someone's like, oh, and who did you go on holiday with to, so this happened to me before, where I was at a barbecue with like, and someone was like, oh, who did you go to LA with? 
And it was like, oh, if I say my ex-boyfriend, then I've got to get into the whole bisexual thing. And you know what I mean? And I think it's in moments like that where you say, oh, my ex-boyfriend, and you just leave it with people to, to make up their own mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that all that's great, great, great advice. But, you know, people... It depends on people's lives and people's circumstances, doesn't it? I think I may have mentioned it on one of the previous podcasts. You know, I was looking at some forum and there was a girl who was clearly bisexual but really frustrated um, that people just didn't get it. And she's actually started, you know, just saying she's gay now. She can't be bothered. You know, it's just so much easier to say I'm gay. Um, so, you know, that's that's not good, is it? That's going to cause her loads of problems down the line because she's going to be, you know, have all this pent-up sort of... I mean, I'm sure there might be people, individuals she can talk to, but 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 it's not it's not good that. What, what's your advice, Nikki? Yeah, so I'm a bit like Lewis. Um, I often refer to my ex girlfriends uh, in casual conversation. If I meet people, the similar situation at a barbecue, or I'll talk about the fact that uh, you know the Virgin series that I'm working on at the minute. I'll talk about when people say what you do with work. I say, oh, I'm doing a series about bisexuality from my own perspective. You know, I'll just I'll just be completely frank with them about things like that and uh, just slip it into general conversation. The person I have never said anything about it to is my mum-in-law because she probably just couldn't get her head around it. And I, I just, it's just kind of not worth telling her. Like, I, I'm not worried about her knowing, actually, either way. But I also feel like it would be a bit much for her to cope with and therefore it's not really a big issue for me to not mention it. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. <laughs> There are some people that you just, yeah, it's just not worth bothering with. Is it's, it, just, really? it's just a bit too complicated to go into it. So, and it's, she'll be like, but you're married to my son. I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get that. I'm the same with like my old, like my two granddads don't know. And it's just like, well, they're like both over 80, like approaching 90, like who cares? And I think that's the thing is we all kind of feel like, well, you're not a good bisexual if you're not out to everyone. It's like, but there are some people who just, it doesn't matter. Agree. Totally agree. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's interesting that you should say all that. I mean, I, I think I, um, yeah, I've done it a few times where I've subtly just dropped hints in, in about bisexuality. I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether it's easier. Maybe it's the same thing, really. Whether you're in a gay facing relationship or straight facing relationship, um, I think when you're in a gay facing relationship and you've been in a relationship for a long, long time, I suppose it gets probably exactly the same. But people do assume that you have embraced all the gay thing and that you're definitely gay 100% and all the rest of it and when you start to sort of mention bisexuality I find people just they look at me just look at me blank (laughs) it's like they just don't they don't get what I'm talking about it's like you know it's as, as though it's like they've accepted me as being in the gay box if you know what I mean and it's like I'm, I'm just confusing things. In fact, this did happen this week, actually. Not for me personally, but I did an interview, a sports interview. And we were talking about uh, tennis. And we were talking about the fact there are a lot of openly um, you know, gay tennis players, women in particular, more than men. And uh, I just happened to say, um, and of course, there are lots of people who might be bisexual as well. And the person responded, well, yes, if you want to, if you want to confuse things even more... <laughs> It's sorry, but it's just not confusing. It's just not confusing. That's what you get, isn't it? You... That's a distinction, though, right? Because your your question is about how do you want a bisexuality whilst you're in a relationship? How do you like kind of like remind people? But what you're talking about there is like, but what happens when that reminding people then leads to biphobia and ignorance, and then you've got your campaigning hat on. So that's a separate thing, I think. There's like reminding people. If people then turn around, they're like. You what? Burn them. Burn them at the stake. Like then that I think that's a separate thing. Then you have to punch them in the face. <laughs> Joking. 
Or with am your I words. With your words, yeah. <laughs> with your words. Yeah, that's right. That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I didn't take it any further. I just left it and just carried on But because uh, I couldn't be bothered. But, um, but yeah, but that just shows you the subtle, you know, that behind the scenes are a lot of people just, they, they just don't get it, you know, don't get it. Now, we're in this situation of, of pride period or whatever it is, and we've just got this, we've just ended up on the power list. Um, everybody, though, wants to be in on the act, don't they? Are we happy that everybody wants to be in on, in on the act? In the sense, that what I mean is, you know, it just feels sometimes that, that pride flag is used a lot and used quite tokenistically by businesses and things. And I'm not saying that, you know, there will be genuine businesses who want to show their support for the LGBT community. I understand that, absolutely. And I don't think we should deny them that. But you do sometimes feel, don't you, that it's all a bit cynical and token and doesn't really mean anything? I am so fed up of going on LinkedIn or a social platform or um, going to a supermarket and I see the pride flag built into the logo and then I don't see any other indicator that they're doing anything for the LGBT community. You know, there's no donation going to a charity. There's no, um, like, special LGBT shopping hour where you get a big discount or, (laughs) I don't know, maybe that's a bit dubious. But, you know, I'm not seeing any benefits for the LGBT community for them to get involved. So that's what irritates me about it. And if you have just changed your logo to be uh, rainbow colours for a month, like Uber does it with, you know, with um, you can track your car and it's in a rainbow colour. What's the point? It's not achieving anything. It's so irritating. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's, uh, I think there is a lot of that. And, and also, to be fair, as well, we're always banging on about we want the media to do more. Um, but I do feel as though there's a bit of that in the media as well, actually. Um, in certain areas where you feel, oh, why are they doing this? They're just doing it because, I'm not mentioning any names, could be any, any, there's loads of companies that are doing bits and bobs. And you just feel as though they don't really necessarily believe in it or know anything about it. They're just doing it because they want to, you know, make some money, I suppose, to an extent. Um, mm. Do you know what I mean? It's a funny, it's a funny one. What's your take on it, Lewis? Because, you know, you, you've been, you've been banging on about bisexuality for many years, but every year some people come up and start saying the odd little thing and it's like they're suddenly making yeah. making noises and whatever, but then they disappear, they disappear again quite quickly, don't they? So here's the thing. It's quite balanced for me. So look, the fact that big supermarkets want to kind of say LGBT people are great, that is huge. Like, that is progress because there was, there was a time not so long ago they wouldn't have touched that at all. So I'm kind of like, look, it's good because if you work for that company or you like that brand, the fact that they've shown their support for queer people is good. It also means that if they're then ever in a position of like not supporting queer people, we've got something to smash them over the head with. So it kind of is is a bit of an insurance policy. However, I totally get everyone's points about it's tokenistic and all that kind of stuff. To me, I'm more, it's, it's just wasted potential. Like you've got all this money, you've got all these smart minds on this and every company's like, why don't we change our logo? to a rainbow. It's like, no, there are so many, and this is my point, it's been my point consistently every year on Pride. There are so many issues in the LGBT that don't get looked at. So it's about not going so wide and being like about, oh, we love all LGBT people. You can say we love all LGBT people, but then you can also say, and this year we're gonna look at the issue of bisexual people and whether they're more or less likely to use a condom with a man or a woman, because that's never been looked at before. We're gonna put some money behind it, we're gonna do some research and we're gonna, analyze the findings and then we're gonna run a health campaign afterwards and it's gonna be a whole year thing that 
would be a better use of funds. So I'm just like, it's just a missed opportunity. We could pretty much solve so many of the bisexual issues if brands just kind of stopped being like, well, just do a rainbow and do something overall. You know what it is, unfortunately? Um, it's it's kind of like inclusivity is, 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 is what's holding it back. It's trying to inco- encapsulate so much. So then in the end, what can it really say other than generally be nice to people? That's it. So it's, yeah. like, it's like, look, we love, we love all queer people, but we're going to focus on this one area. And if every brand did a different area, we could piece the whole thing together overnight. Yeah, and I wonder actually, you know, if we went and did a quiz of some of these big businesses about what does what what are all the colours of the rainbow, <laughs> the rainbow flag, and, and the different issues and things like, they probably wouldn't know, wouldn't, wouldn't know any of it. You know what I mean? And certainly purple, uh, they probably wouldn't know what the purple one was. That's that, that that's for sure. I think. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, you know, you're right. It needs to be something practical, doesn't it? You know, I mean, the thing I kept mentioning, thing I mentioned in the last podcast about doing some kind of bisexual amnesty. You know, give people the opportunity to be out about being bisexual or whatever. It needs to be something, something practical. Um, and and you know, and I think we need to. I said this before, but I think the bisexual awareness day in September or whenever it is, you know, that really needs to be. We need to think of a way. Now we're on the power list. Down to us, guys. Down to us. <laughs> Increasingly. Making that something more than it is because I always find it's a contradiction in terms of Bisexual Awareness Day. You know, it just doesn't... You know, most people don't know when it is. Most bisexual have never heard of it. You know, it's a, it's a very, um, very strange one. But anyway, we, we've got several weeks to go before that. Hopefully we can think of something to make a bit of noise, I would think. Guys, it's been fantastic. Now we're the most powerful people in the world. No, I'm joking. <laughs> the 99th most powerful <laughs> group of people in the LGBT world. <laughs> Which we mustn't abuse, Ash, as per our original conversation at the back of the beginning of the, of the discussion. It can't go to our heads. That's what worries me. That's what worries me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially when you say, you're always saying, you're always comparing us as, uh, what do you say? You, there's three people you think we are. What are we? Oh, no, no, I don't think that. I say there's three types of people, empaths, sociopaths and psychopaths. None of us are a psychopath, as far as I know. But I'm watching you, Ash, now to see if the power goes to your head. (laughs) And maybe my definition will change. But me and Lewis are definitely sociopaths and... This, this has only boosted our sense of superiority, hasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Been on this, been on this uh, list. And what is any, any anything else? Do we get any other perks out of this? Do we get any? Do we get a? Do we... <laughs> what else well, you, you know want? what? Do you, get, do you get invited to anything or? No. Do you know what? No. <laughs> I'm going to use it now because um, basically Twitter have finally opened up their whole verification things. I'm like. I really think I should be verified. I so think you've you should got too. to submit three three you can submit three three articles. So I'm gonna submit that one. So that's yeah. the whole thing, you have to build yeah. momentum now. So you're on the power list. That then leads to verification. Then you've got to kinda of keep that momentum going. Can we get to Downing Street though? Because I've always wanted to go for canapes at Downing Street and I know so many people that have been and I'm still not on my, never been invited, so I've actually been in number ten. Oh, I've I met I met David Cameron and Nick Clegg back in whenever it was, whenever they were to get, you know, back in the five, six years ago, seven years ago, whatever. And I was just there to interview them about um, meeting the Queen because it was a programme about celebrating the Queen at the time had been on the throne, what, 60 years it would have been then or whatever. And um, yeah, it was a weird experience. The place itself is dilapidated. Yeah, everyone says that, it's quite hideous. The only thing that's really quite grand is the the, the cabinet room, which I, we got to sit in and have, a, and have a cup of tea, which is great. 
um, and the, uh, the the staircase where you've got all the pictures of the prime ministers. That's really yeah. quite nice. Uh, but the rest of it is really, really dilapidated. What was strange, though, was a couple of things, funny things from it, um, was that it doesn't matter who that person is, whether you like them or you don't like them. They're in the position of prime minister. So they walk into the door and you sort of, you change into sort of, yes, prime minister. You know, you, hold, you shake the hand and go, yes. You know, it's really strange. It's weird. You just do it automatically. It's like, nice to meet you, prime minister. You know what I mean? It's like... Just really odd oh, situation. I'm not sure I'd be deferential to Boris Johnson. I think, but... yeah. <laughs> Depending who's in number 10 next year if we're going. Like, <laughs> I think one of us might have to hold Nikki back. Yeah. Well, that's why I won't get invited, isn't it? So we'll have to wait till someone I actually yeah. like gets in. Yeah. And then maybe it'll be okay. This was, this, was David, this was David Cameron. And I think they're a bit different in a way, in the way, the way they portray themselves. But, um, and the other thing was, which is really ridiculous, my partner um, came with me on the day. And um, uh, it was about, we'd met the Prime Minister about lunchtime and we had to get back to Manchester because um, a partner who suffers with mental health problems um, basically uh, had to see his psychiatrist later on the day. We had a psychiatrist meeting and I was going, I was going there. And um, we got in there, quite a rush because of the trains and whatever, as usual. And um, he sat down and, and the psychiatrist said, what have you been up to? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, t- today I had... T- I had tea with the Prime Minister at Downing Street and I met Nick Clegg and blah, 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 blah. And of course, we didn't think anything of it at that point. But then about six weeks later, he's reading, he's, he's seeing these notes that have been written down about him and they basically thought he was being delusional. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so you just so you can't win, can you? No, it's a really, really strange situation. But yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, another bisexual brunch. Fantastic. This is our 24th bisexual brunch, I think we've just done. Um, so we've done quite a lot uh, over over the year. We'll be a year old in August, so we need to think about that and what we're going to do. We, we we do say this at the end anyway on our out, outro thing, but let's reiterate it. You know, if anybody wants to, any, well, people are getting in touch anyway to tell their stories, which is great. But um, Lewis, you, you're quite keen on people asking us questions and things and seeing where we yeah, about everything. I really want to introduce to this show, kind of like ask the bisexuals. Um, so I would love, if anyone's listening to this, to just send in your questions that you would like to see the three of us debate, because I think it's one thing for one of us to reply to, to a question, but, you know, this is an opportunity for you guys to send in a question and have us all have a row with each other whilst we talk about what's the best advice to give you. It'll be really good entertaining podcasting. So please, send in your questions. We'll have a row. It'll be fun. And yeah, send them in. You, if you, our, um, our email address is on the... Twitter page, right, Ash? Yeah, it's on the Twitter page. Yeah, they can get us in touch. Yeah, but, but, also, but also they could also, if, if you're already friends of Bisexual Brunch on Twitter, you can DM us or whatever. Okay, well, that's Bisexual Brunch for this week. If you've got any comments, thoughts, musings, do get in touch with us at, at Bisexual Brunch on Twitter. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye for now. Right, I'm going to go and find out about this Loki or Luku or whatever it is, because I'm a DC boy, not a Marvel boy, and I'm going to go watch this episode and judge the bisexuality depiction and come back to you guys. Comic books and superheroes are really big with bisexuals, and I am, I am a stereotype. <laughs> this program is an MIM production. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.